But just to get to Psalm 97, I want to say a little bit about this. Um, in fact, I want to say quite a bit about this psalm, but about the heading in particular. First of all, Psalm 97, not, not all of them are going to have a famous verse um, and so forth. This one, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice, is to me rather famous just in my life because in high school we sang a song called Obey the Spirit and uh, I got to sing a solo, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and so forth, but uh, that was just me and how long ago was high school. Let's not just talk about that at all. Um, Reagan was in office, yes, yes. And, and I, I even got to vote for him later. Um, oh, I'm not supposed to, t I, I, I shouldn't talk about my political views. Apologize for that, so. That's right, I did, I did. Um, so this, uh, this uh, psalm is an orphan, except it's not uh, uh, outside of Hebrew. So in the Greek translation and in the Latin translation, it's given David as its author. And I want to talk a little bit about that because the, when the, when the, uh, there's going to be another uh, instance here in, in, in these psalms that's going to fling us back into the far past with the authorship of the Psalms. Um, we're going to have an example that, that tells us that this goes back to David's time. Most of the Psalms go back to David's time. Um, <clears throat> and when a Psalm like this has a heading that they would dare to add to the text like this, you know, with the, with the translator, it makes you kind of wonder about that. But if we think about this, the the, uh, the exiles came back from Babylon in the 500s and 400s BC. The last of the biblical authors in the Old Testament were Malachi and whoever wrote Esther. I don't know who wrote Esther. Mordecai maybe, but I don't really know. Um, uh, those things happened in like the 380s, 400s to 380s BC. Very shortly after that, relatively speaking, in the 200s, the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek in Alexandria, Egypt. And they got a bunch of scholars. The, the legend is that there were 70 scholars, which is why it's called the Septuagint. That's what that Greek translation is called, which is the Greek for 70, Septuaginta. Um, I say that as if I'll prick your memory. Any of you have high school Latin? No, me neither actually, although college Latin, but did you have? Okay, so, uh, but if I do it in Roman numerals, if you pay attention at football games, uh, LXX would be 70, and we'll get there pretty soon with Super Bowls, um, so you'll, you'll, you'll understand that. We're already in the L something with Super Bowls, right? So L is 50 and double X is 20, so that's, do the math. That's what that is. Well, anyway, something intriguing happened with the translation of the Old Testament. The books of Moses were done by, in, in that group of scholars, if it was 70 or if it was 12, I don't know. But the guy or guys who did the Moses books did a great job. The Pentateuch in the Septuagint is, is beautiful. It's a wonderful translation. 
You get a little bit further down the line, the sort of Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings section, it's pretty good. It's not, it's, I wouldn't say it's beautiful any longer, but it's pretty good translation. Better than I could have done. Then you get to the Psalms and the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah especially, and it's still quite passable. Good, you know. But then you get to some of the books at the end, and it's, huh? It's just strange that it gets, as you, as you get further down the line, it gets uh, uh, sort of substandard to the point where some books like um, um, the minor prophet Nahum, it's practically unreadable Greek because they, the guy kind of did it word for word with the Hebrew. And that's not how any language works. You can't go from the original language to the receptor language and go word for word because that's not how languages work. Um, you have, Martin Luther was the one to first advocate this, which is there needs to be some kind of a, of a balance between if I can do it word for word, great. You know, uh, Solomon, son of David, I could do that word for word from Hebrew to English and nobody would care. But some expressions are just so odd in Hebrew that you have to tell people what they mean in the new language rather than what the Hebrew actually says. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is in Hebrew, you have this, this phrase that I would translate, um, the Lord's nose became hot. What do you think that means? It means that God got angry. Yeah. And then, and then you think of like cartoons and things of noses heating up or whatever and Bugs Bunny's great line, stop steaming up my tail and other things like that. But that you, you, you don't see the Lord's nose became hot in most translations. You'll see the Lord became angry. So that's an example of, of Luther's way of translating, which is how most translations that are um, readable today behave. Um, but for some reason in this time when the, when the Septuagint, this Greek translation was being made, they were, they were all right with adding to the headings of the Psalms. And I wonder about this. In, in some cases, did they have a copy that had, they were aware that in some, in some version, there was a copy that had this heading? So that I'll, I'll say the guy, like if it was Ezra who compiled the Psalms, he didn't have the heading. But not that long after, that's only a couple generations later, somebody thought, oh, I, I know this one. And oh, I, I remember there being a heading on this. And he kind of stuck it on. So that kind of thing, you know, it, it could have happened. Where somebody still knew, you know, the author of the song or whatever. Um, in 19, I, I think it was about 74. That might not be the right year. It might have been 75. Anyway, uh, there was a guy and his wife went to Africa to record music. They, this was a rock star. And they decided, well, we're big famous rock stars. I'm going to get off of the regular path and we're going to do some sightseeing on our own without any guards or anything. And immediately what happened, he got held up. And the guys who robbed him took his little satchel. He, was, he had like a, like a man purse going on. And inside of it, 
was his notebook with all of the lyrics to music he had ever written, his notebook, and a recording, the only recording that existed of a song he had just made up the day before. His name was Paul McCartney. It was the original copy of Band on the Run that got stolen, and he never got it back. Nor did he get any of those lyrics back. That notebook with all of Paul McCartney's lyrics was gone forever. Um, but just to cover one thing that I've never said before in, in a class is that it was Paul McCartney's idea to put the lyrics of his songs on the albums. That the Beatles are the first ones who ever did that for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it was Paul's idea. And after Paul started doing it, everybody started doing it. It's standard now. But Paul's idea was, let's do this. And that way, he didn't have to have the notebook any longer. He had Because one thing that was like a joke in the band was John Lennon could write a song, and the next day he wouldn't know any of the words to his own song. You know, so they constantly had a problem with that. And Paul said, let's just put them on the records. And then John can forget, but we can just grab the record and John can read it off the back, you know, like as if it's karaoke or something like that. Um, but that's also why the song Band on the Run had some weird words. There's a reference to um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the jailer man and sailor Sam will search forevermore for the band on the run. That's from a kid's show, like a, a, like a British cartoon, because he couldn't think of the actual rhyme he had made up. So he went back to something else. It's like you and me talking about Captain Kangaroo or something like that, So just because it fit. But anyway, so with the, with the Psalms, did somebody have some of those original copies laying around that Ezra didn't? Anyway, I'm not sure about that. But this one we have of David in Greek, when he was put in charge of the land, um, and that's what, the, that's what the Greek text says. But the Hebrew doesn't have it, so we're going to leave it out of our translation. But I sometimes think a footnote here would be okay. But I've never had my translation of the Psalms published, so my footnotes don't count. So I'll just leave it at that. Let's go on, shall we? So let's start the class. All righty. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. <clears throat> when you hear about shores or islands in the Old Testament, it's usually a reference to the islands of the Mediterranean Sea. Because as you start on the right-hand side of the screen and work your way into the Mediterranean, you're going to end up with hundreds and even thousands of islands, some of them pretty big. The size here, some of these, Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, the size of what, Massachusetts? You know, Rhode Island and so forth. But some of them, like all of that scribble that's in the Aegean Sea, where it looks like you spilled the sprinkles from making cookies on the floor, you know, that's, they're, they're little tiny things and there are too many to name even and so forth. In fact, today, did you know that you can buy Greek islands if you want? And not even for that much money. Yeah, you can buy one. You have to keep it up, but you can buy it and you can have it and you can retire there if you want to. It's, I mean, I'm not talking about my rinky-dink one square foot of Scotland here. I'm talking about actually owning an island in, in Greece. You could do that. 
Um, but here, where we have not just the shores or the islands, but the distant shores, this is a reference to the whole world. So it's let the earth be glad, and then in parallel, let the distant shores. Does that make sense? So it's the whole earth that's now being called on to praise God. Um, and uh, here uh, we have, we're going to begin with the glory of the Lord. So clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. I want to come back to that phrase in a moment. But fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. That seems to be something different than lightning. Because lightning's in the next verse. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. There is a Hebrew word for lightning, but it's often paired with one man-made object. If you had, in ancient times, had to compare lightning to an object, what might it be? Maybe. Maybe. But it's arrows. Flashing arrows. Yeah, but torch is a really good guess. Yeah, um, but the, the lightning lights up the world, the earth sees and trembles, and the mountains melt. I'll come back to verse 5. But going back up to, to all the way to verse 2, the clouds and thick darkness that surround him are really talking about the cloud that is the glory of the Lord. And then inside is the brightness. But here we get to even peer beneath God's throne to the foundations of the throne. And a man, a, a human would think, gold, stone, something. What does God say the foundation of his throne is? Righteousness and justice. And um, on your handout, I have some examples of righteousness and justice. That's what the Queen of Sheba said are the foundations of Solomon's throne, the righteousness and justice. That's in 1 Kings 10. And then Job. Job describes his former life based on these two things, righteousness and justice, and he adds a third, making the widow's heart sing, which is, you know, helping people who are in need, right? Um, and, uh, but the, these are typically words that describe uh, a king. And I, I wonder more and more, uh, was Job, in fact, a king of some kind? He's not called a king in the book, but he is a, an enormous landowner over in Uz, which we would call Edom or Moab, over on the other side of the Dead Sea. And the richest people are the ones who come to visit him, you know, his, his three friends and so forth. And then you get to Genesis. Sorry, I got to pour the memories from one side of my head to the other. So <laughs> I think it's... It's Genesis 39. Genesis 39 is the genealogy of the kings of Moab and Edom. And in that genealogy, uh, long about the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you get this king in Moab named Jobab, which is pretty close to the actual guy's name. Uh, and, you know, I mean, because, you know, how many times does a David become a Dave? Or a Nathaniel become a Nate. You know, even, even the funeral parlor here in New Alm has begun to almost get Pastor Sharp's first name right on the calendar. But they don't quite have Nathaniel yet, but they'll get it one of these years. Um, 
I always correct them, but I always correct them on January 2nd. And then, oh, that's, well, that's next year. Okay, well, we'll get it right next time. But, um, but Jobab could have been a king in Edom, and it would work. It would fit the text and everything. He's just not called a king, but he's described like a king in many of the things that he says. But I'll just leave that. I'll just let that go. But then we get down to the lightning lighting up the world, the earth sees and trembles. These are all statements really of law and of fear. And the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. A mountain melting is certainly a terrifying thing. Not even necessarily a volcano, but an ordinary mountain, a, a big thing somewhere. Uh, was, it, was it 10 years ago? No, no, it was in the 90s, wasn't it? When California started losing houses to erosion. You'd, you'd, you'd turn on the news and there'd be another mansion falling off the cliff into the ocean um, just because there is nothing left to hold it up anymore. And you'd think, you know, maybe I did okay building in the, in the Midwest, you know, instead of on the ocean, you know. Um, but before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth, notice the Lord's two titles in verse 5. He has capital L-O-R-D, which is the Lord's name, Yahweh or Jehovah, and then small, I mean capital, but then small O-R-D for Lord, which is a, a, a master, or what would they say in Spanish? Don? You know, or something in uh, in Japanese, um, adding san, mister. You know, that's kind of what we're getting at here with that. Okay. No, it's just that sometimes God gets that title also. Oh, okay. You know, Jehovah, the mister, the master, the landowner, oh, okay. the one who reads my time card, you know, it's, and so forth. Uh, and then the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. How many of you have seen this phenomenon in the sky? I have a few times. Uh, there was one time when I was back in Wisconsin, as a, I, was, I think I was still a goat herd, when uh, the northern lights got so far down that I had to turn around and face south to see one ribbon. They were that far south, which is just stunning to me. But... When uh, certain rays from the sun, I forget if it's gamma rays or whatever the northern lights are, but they interact with the Earth's atmosphere and you get these color things that happen. They're gorgeous from above as well as from below. But they're ribbons like this of uh, usually green and yellow, sometimes other colors, blue sometimes sneaks in there. I don't, I've never seen them with anything but green and yellow. Um, but beautiful ribbons that change and come and go and it's marvelous. But... Obviously, verse 6 isn't just talking about that, but really about the stars themselves, the gorgeousness of the stars. Um, looking out right now in this part of the year, you have a great view of Orion, the giant constellation that you know uh, most people can find. Or not far away are the, North, the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, and the W stars, as I call them to my, my children. That's Cassiopeia, actually, but shaped like a W and points to the North Star and so forth and other things that are just marvelous. If you look at, the, at, at Orion and then let your eye relax, you can sometimes see up and to the right a little cloud of stars that'll vanish if you try to look at them. Those are the Pleiades. It's a little cluster that they're almost too, too dim to look at head on, but you can kind of see them 
if you're not looking at them directly. Do you know why that is, by the way? At night, human vision goes dead blind, directly centered. Um, that's a part of anatomy that, that, that is an odd little quirk. But right exactly straight on, um, we get blind at night. Um, with some people, that even increases to what's called night blindness. But dead center. And so to see a cluster of stars, you kind of have to look away and then you'll see it. Mark? Exceptional vision. Yeah. Mark, we all get older. You're not 19 anymore. <laughs> I'll just put it that way and we'll just leave it. Okay, but uh, so all peoples see his glory. Um, you've, m most of you have never read out loud in worship, but it's not easy when the translator makes you say all peoples see. I think about this because I have to read this stuff out loud and uh, why the translator did that, I mean, a little bit of word flip and you would have expressed the same thing with the same emphasis, but all the peoples see his glory is not easy to say. I'm, I'm going to get off of that soapbox now and just move on, but sometimes. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him all you. You remember last time I talked about the little petty godlings? This is the same word. Little Little, uh, little, little, uh, uh, Dr. Brug calls them mini-gods. Um, Elilim, so little gods. False idols. Um, the, the proclamation here of his glory is both law and gospel, but nothing God does can be imitated by any mere idol. These little mini-gods. Um, the devil wants people to think that they can imitate what God does, but really, it doesn't even come close. So... Zion hears and rejoices, verse 8. When you see Zion here in this kind of a context, what do you think it almost always means? Zion here is the church. The church. Um, even when David is writing, Zion was the mountain where David wanted the temple to be built. So even David is probably thinking ahead to, I want, I want the temple to be up there, even though it wasn't yet. But, and he didn't even have an idea of exactly where it would be until the, almost the end of his reign with the second census. Remember the angel? Um, the killing angel came because David had sinned and it stopped above the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. That's where the temple, that's where they put the actual um, Holy of Holies. But other, apart from that, David didn't have an idea really of where the temple would be until that moment just that it would be up the hill somewhere, you know, up on top. Which, by the way, is probably the location of where what other famous event had happened a thousand years before David's time. It's where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. That's the spot. Um, because in Abraham's time, they called it Mount Moriah. By David's time, they called it Mount Zion. By crusader times... Mount Zion was misidentified. And from your perspective, Mount Zion is here, and the Crusaders called this mountain over here Zion because it's a little bit higher. And so today, Mount Zion is misidentified in Israel. 
It's, it's the wrong one. It's the new hill and not, it should be the old hill. And the tour guides will tell you that. They'll say, oh yeah, it's, it, I know that sign says it over here, but this is where Zion was. And they're exactly right. So, one of those things. For you, O Lord, <clears throat> uh, oh no, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth, and you are exalted far above, and this connects to previous Psalms, far above all gods. And here, the other gods probably is a reference to angels, I think, and not, and not necessarily idols, but it could be. It could be um, idols, as it has been in other times. But we're moving in these psalms, as we're getting closer and closer to 100, we're, we're getting further and further removed from idolatry and closer and closer to genuine worship, which is, I mean, talked about in the psalms, if that makes sense. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. That word really stands out in Hebrew, that the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy upon the upright in heart. Those are really the same. That's a, that's a synonymous line, isn't it? Light on the righteous, joy on the upright. And rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. So we end with the name of God. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, and the, the believer's action here at the beginning of, of this little section, is to first of all hate evil. I suppose to love the Lord first. Hate evil, shed light on, on, uh, on the truth, to rejoice, to praise. There's a lot of sanctification and good works in just these three verses. Um, would, be, would be worth a confirmation sermon someday, or a summertime sermon, I think. Psalm 97, 10 to 12. Another way of looking at a psalm, if you're trying to get a hold of the poetry and figure out why does he throw in this unusual line in the middle of things, because sometimes the poet will do that, is to lay out the psalm, uh, as I'm going to do here, uh, with just key words and their verses. So I took the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm, the first and last verse, laid them side by side, and looked at key words or verbs or unusual nouns. Those are kind of how you find key words. I know I don't have this on your sheet, but here it is. <clears throat> so praise and rejoice, those go together, don't they? And now look at the second verse and the second from last. One talks about dark clouds and the glory of the Lord. The other one, the other side says light, but they're a reference to the same thing because those dark clouds are what surrounds the throne of God. So it's a different ways of looking at the same thing. And then 3 and 10, the foes and the wicked. So um, then we have the idea of lightning and then uh, God enthroned above all gods that just kind of gets the head pointed upwards at the sky. And there isn't always an exact correlation, but these two things can be seen to go together. And then the mountains melt. That's the judgment of God, right? But then remember Zion is talking about the church. So you flip that over and Zion hears, the church hears. So nature is subject to God, but the church loves what God says. And then finally, the heavens proclaim, and the opposite of that is that when the heavens proclaim, idolatry is put to shame. So it's one other way of looking at a psalm to get a hold of where the poet is going as he's 
doing this. Does this make a little bit of sense? I mean, so, sometimes you have to do this with an English poem because you just don't know where the guy's going. Um, one of the poets who can confuse me the most is when Shakespeare is writing his sonnets and I just get lost in there in those, uh, is it 12 or 14 lines, 14 lines, I guess, and where is he going with this? And then, but if you start to take it apart and analyze, and I think, why do I have to analyze this to understand it? It's just, ugh, it just takes a while. But then you appreciate it and so forth, and then you become snobby. So there I am. <laughs> I just want to admit my faults. So. Anything left on Psalm 97? Let's move. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.